It is a great honor to welcome the 2020 Hallberg Laureate, Griselda Pollock, to the Hallberg Conversation. Welcome. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. You are Professor of Social and Critical Histories of Art and the founding director of the Center for Cultural Analysis, Theory and History at the University of Leeds. First of all, I would like to congratulate you on receiving the Hallberg Prize this year. As the Hallberg Committee expresses in their statement of motivation, you have received the prize for your, and I quote, groundbreaking contributions to feminist history of art and cultural studies. Your work has not only helped to transform the discipline of art history and the art historical canon, but your scholarly practice has also exercised a profound influence on numerous other fields, including cinema studies, psychoanalysis, histories of modernism and modernity, theories of trauma, memory and affect, to mention only a few. Your work is marked by this forceful investment in challenging received wisdoms and hierarchies of value from a feminist perspective. And this critical orientation runs through your close to 30 monographs, more than 20 edited collections, and several of hundred scholarly articles and essays. Publications which indeed has led you to become, as the Holbrook Committee writes, a beacon for generations of art historians and cultural analysts such as myself. Perhaps we can start by going back to your arrival in academia as a student in the late 1960s and early 1970s. What was the discipline of art history like at that time, and what compelled you to start working with the history of art from a feminist perspective? Well, thank you very much for such a lovely, generous uh, introduction. I, I'm always alarmed when I hear these sorts of things because just as a an everyday sort of scholar, I have been teaching, I've been writing, I've been doing what academics um, are meant to do. And I am so honored that someone nominated me and that this prize has been awarded, not just to me, but precisely for this relationship between feminism and art history. So I think it's a very good place to start. I did not know that there was such a subject as art history. I went to university to study law because I'd been inspired by TV programs like Perry Mason, and I thought I was going to bring the world to rights by becoming you know, an advocate or a lawyer. And then I was too young to go to university. They asked me, they offered me a place at Oxford, but said, go away and think about it. And I came back and decided I would do history, which was my mother's subject. So I have a very, very solid historical basis from my, my first degree. But during my final year, I listened to some lectures by the great art historian Francis Haskell on 19th century Napoleonic and Romantic painting, which I would have walked past if I'd been in an art gallery because I'd have had no way of understanding it. But he gave these astonishing lectures about the whole meaning of Napoleon, the revolution, the disappointment, the formation of empire, the melancholy at the defeat of Napoleon. And I suddenly saw these works were doing something in this complex history of the French Revolution, but in a dramatic, theatricalized and passionate way. Mm -hmm. So I took a, the only option for art history, my history degree was introduced that very year. And I studied the 19th century with Francis Haskell called Baudelaire and the Artists of His Time. Now, we must understand that art history has a history. And in the 1960s, there was very little in the way of an art history of the 19th century. There were some very important French studies and some very important, in fact, Danish studies trying to give us the beginning of a shape of what happened in the 19th century, realism, impressionism, post-impressionism. 
Um, John Rievelt's book, The History of Impressions, and the first attempt at a documentary history, only appeared in 1947. And the great sort of blockbuster exhibitions, the sort of celebrity status of Manet and Degas and Pizarro and Sura, which came in the 80s and 90s with all these big blockbuster exhibitions, it didn't exist. So it was a very fragile space to go into. And so I went to the Courtauld to do my MA and found not something that I want to dismiss as conservative, I want to situate it. So if you'll bear with me, I, I just need to help the listeners to understand a bit of this. So art history has a history. We have classical writings from, you know, from the Greek classical world like Aristotle and Pliny from the Latin world. We have medieval writings when we then get Vasari and the idea that you study artists by art by studying artists, the biographical model. Then we get the 18th century, they hook up with philosophy and say, what is beauty? How are we going to say, is art all about beauty? And we get the first history of classical art. And then the 19th century, the art history becomes part of the Humboldt University, this model that we still have in most of Europe, with all these new disciplines, philology, theology, linguistics, literature, history. And art history becomes part of that and you know, forms part of the university, and we get the beginnings of a form of art history, which is what did each nation do? So French school, German school, Italian school, Spanish school. Um, nobody studies the British school because there isn't any British art. They borrow it from everybody else apart from medieval embroidery, etc. So we get the first thing, which is art history becomes associated with nation building. And art is seen to be the spirit of the nation. So if you're German, that's Lutheran Christianity. You know, if it's Italian, it's Catholic Christianity. So there's already a racism being built into who is going to represent the nation. And it is not exclusively, but largely these great men, the Vasari model. And then when we get to modern art, we are going to encounter a movement in modern art which will change the terms of the study of art that's theological and historical, because it's going to be about everyday life and new forms for new consciousness. But we also get people like Verflin saying, what makes art history or the history of art different from the history of literature or culture in general? So they come up with the idea of form, that the internal autonomous transformation of form, which takes the mode of styles, is what makes art history specific this is great, we absolutely needed it. But then what happens in the 20th century as I inherited art history is if you were a Renaissance scholar or medieval scholar, you studied iconography. And if you were looking at the modern, the 19th, 20th century, it was purely formalist, which means art is autonomous. It just develops out of its own internal purposes. So as a historian and uh, interested in what drove people to find new forms. Why were there Napoleonic paintings? Why did they become romantically melancholy? It's in that imbrication of artistic forms and practices and artistic thinking with historical urgency. Now there was a tradition of social history of art in Europe, very influenced by Marxism, particularly associated with Budapest, with Antal and Hauser and all these great thinkers in, in the Sunnig circle. Uh, in, in Budapest in the 1920s. But that kind of got repressed because in the, during the 20th century, fascism, the Third Reich, 
particularly, and communism took art over and used it for its very overtly ideological purposes. So in the 1950s, as a reaction against fascism and communism using art, the West created a notion that art in the West was free, democratic, and that was the sign of that was individual and absolutely no political or historical agenda. So if we understand that situation, and then I arrive, along with a whole generation of people, of the generation of 68. And I think it's worth putting to people that the generation of 68 are the people who grew up as the children of those who'd lived through and witnessed the Holocaust, Auschwitz, Hiroshima, in some sense the legacy of both, both world wars. And our generation was, is I would say, post-traumatic. <laughs> which is a way to understand this wasn't just any old rebellion. It was a sense in which we were being delivered a world of modernity that promised us progress and everything was better, when all we were seeing was modernity had delivered us unspeakable political and human catastrophe. And so the, the revolt of this generation, the demand for civil rights to say you're the unfinished business of racism in the United States, the unfinished business of decolonization and the violence with which the attempts to be free were met. Um, and also, obviously, the two great other movements are the gay and lesbian movement to say, why should we be instead socially police criminalized in our desire? And then we have the particular phenomenon of the women's movement. So you've got these negative legacies and these dynamic forces of civil rights, gay and lesbian rights, women's movement rights, and a whole kind of sense that we had to remake the world against, in the face of totalitarianism, both fascist and communist, and also a growing sense that while post-war capitalism gave us all these goods and all this shiny American pop culture, it was soulless and empty and heartless and poverty wasn't going away and cruelty wasn't going away. And so in the pursuit of sort of a sense of urgency as a generation as an, and as a historian, I then turned to thinking, what does that mean for art history? I can't accept its pure autonomy, its pure individualism. Because the minute I looked at it, I realized that that story of art was absolutely itself Eurocentric, white, Christianocentric, racist, heterocratic, and sexist. Now, we didn't have all those lovely terms yet, but we had a very strong sense that these things were all intimately related. But I could speak in my own voice as a feminist, right? We could be in part of you know, Marxist groups, we could be part of civil rights groups, but the women's movement was what gave me a sense that I belonged to a collectivity that had launched itself onto the stage of history as women and created a concept, gender, just as there was class created by Marx, race created by the decolonizing thinkers, the women's movement gave us the category of gender and a system. And my exploration of this was not only what does it mean for art history if I'm studying art to think about these kinds of intimacies between culture and history and its ways of telling itself, but also 
how on earth would I unpick this legacy? What would I have to do to create a new kind of work? So it's very important that feminist art history isn't a sort of subset. There's, you know, stylistic history and formalist history and iconographic history, you know, and anti-racist history and, you know, everybody. And then we've just got a little, you can have a panel at a conference, let's have the feminists. It was part of this kind of crystal of um, youthful rejections of a dream of modernity which had been betrayed. That is a wonderful answer that brings up many central aspects of your early work, which on the one hand has been marked by an investment in thinking critically about the social history of art, which was drawing on Marxist thinking, while on the other hand, your participation in the women's movement that was so central to your work on developing feminist approaches to the history of art, together with groups such as the Women's Art History Collective. How did you work on bringing these two important critical perspectives in productive exchange with each other? Well, th yeah, thank you for that, that, that question. Um, what is very important to convey to people was um, one of my first kind of, um, I suppose, realizations was that while art history has a history and we could begin to say, where, what, is, what is the current point that's being dominant and how could we reach back and examine this history and think differently about it. But we could also understand its, its sort of central shape, these arguments about, you know, nation, period, movement, style, great master. I was also being able through this encounter with different kinds of new theoretical formulations that were part of the revolutions of the 50s and 60s, I'd say, is understanding art history as a discourse, that art history itself is a pattern of statements that are producing particular meanings while excluding others, privileging certain ways of thinking while making others seem to be non-art historical, outside, that's sociology, which I was often told, you know, you can do sociology if you want, but if you want to do art history, you have to not do these sort of social history questions. So, um, we knew there was something wrong and I was beginning to see the shape of that problem of centered on the great white male artist and the consistent exclusion in modern art history and the art history of the modern, of women. We didn't have any formal classes. So everything happened outside academy. We set up reading groups. If we wanted to read Marx or we wanted to read Freud or we wanted to read Foucault or we wanted to explore psychoanalysis. There were little magazines, there were ad hoc symposia, there were people sharing and teaching each other. And the Women's Art History Collective was part of that sense where some artists, some designers, some art writers, some art historians got together and said, how do we do this? Now we had Linda Nochlin's essay, Why Have There Been No Great Women Artists? I had um, Jan Merdal, I think it's Jan Merdal, not Gunnar Merdal, a book about Angkor Vat, mm. uh, which he'd visited with the Vietnam War just a hundred miles away. And he was asking himself, what is it to go and look at Angkor Vat while this is happening, the bombing of Cambodia and the Vietnam War? So we, were, we had that and we had John Berger's Ways of Seeing. So we were kind of putting things together and becoming aware that something amazing was happening in Paris which was being imported and translated largely through film theory and largely through what it ultimately emerged as cultural studies. So it's not as if these theories were on the shelf. I didn't even know such a thing called theory existed. I knew that there were problems 
that different thinkers were thinking about and for which they were giving us concepts with which to think. So understanding, you know, the rela social relations of production if you, and class if you were studying Marx, but also how to think through complex totalities. Foucault was giving us the sense of um, the archaeology of knowledge, the formation of the terms in which we study things and the notion that um, our, our objects of study are produced by the way we do it. And this produces the expert and the object. And none of us are intending to be you know, cruel to disabled or mad or criminal people, but expertise makes you the, the agent of a system. And the object, the person who's ill or you know, afflicted psychologically, becomes a mad person or a criminal person. And as he began to write about sexuality, we began to think about the body. Who's controlling the body? Who's, what discourse is there about the body? And it seemed art history needed to be in conversation with all of this. And I would like to just say one thing, which is my sort of insight into this, which is in 1905, we get these incredible moment of five revolutions. Einstein says, what's the physical world? Saussure says, what is language? Husserl, Husserl asks, what is being? And founds phenomenology in that tradition. Freud asks, what is the mind? And Bergson is asking, could we have a material foundation for imagination and memory. Now, these we know happened in 1905, this extraordinary uh, tradition or explosion of revolutions. I think it took until the 50s and 60s for those events to kind of percolate and change the arts and humanities. So as I just went to university, 67, there's a translate publication of, of uh, Lacan's Écrit. There's um, the beginning of Foucault's publication. Derrida is going to publish Grammatology and Difference in Repetition. And then we're going to get Christian Metz and various writers in film theory. And so it really is a, a, a generational moment of intense investigation and the legacies of these great modern questions. What is the mind, what, you know, the psyche, psychoanalysis? What is being, phenomenology? What is language, semiotics, structuralism, post-structuralism? What is difference? These big questions, and I see that's my, my formation. So it's not a, a bricolage of let's go to the supermarket and borrow a bit of these theories. We knew that these were all interrelated challenges to a certain uh, facile humanistic idea that is represented, whether it's by the great writer, the great thinker, the national canon, and you know, the great artist. And we could use those to burrow into this question of how does what, the way we say it, the concepts we have to think with, and the concepts that we don't yet have, how do they limit our ability to understand these human and social processes as they form themselves into complex relationships and not simple ones? Your work has from the start been characterized by an attempt to develop languages and concepts that enable us to pose new questions to art and society. This is also the case in your PhD dissertation, which centered on the work of Vincent van Gogh. This is an artist whose work you've continued to write about, both together with Fred Orton, as well as alone up until today. As one of the most well-known artists in the world, van Gogh's work is surrounded by these endless and quite conservative mythologies of genius, gender, masculinity, and death. 
How did your interest in Van Gogh come about? Okay, that that's a lovely question, and I'm going to sort of I, I'd like perhaps to sort of give the sort of Janus-like figure that for anybody trying to think a kind of feminist, what I came to call a feminist intervention in arts histories. So this phrase is to say there are many more histories than the one that is official and given and canonized in the museums or canonized in sort of academic teaching. And the histories are more plural because there are different centers to different histories, centers from people from outside the West, centers for people who are queer, centers for people who are women trying to think through this. And obviously there are queer women and queer women, queer women from the outside uh, Europe. So I mean, these great conversations, etc. So as, as we um, were kind of exploring those um, multiple histories, the idea is not to make a new subcategory, but to intervene and explore them. And my question was from feminism. And feminism has two sides. One is to critique sexism, which is therefore we are against sexism. We pick it out, we identify it. The other is for feminism, because we have never had a world explored through uh, women's perspectives, in women's voices, in this intellectual revolution that we call feminism, was the first time women in large numbers went to university and studied in their own name. They didn't become intellectual transvestites and patriarchal ventriloquists speaking the sort of authoritative that we questioned. And so every discipline in the university curriculum has been challenged by feminism from, from genetics through to philosophy. So in my art historical project, there's two sides as well. One is you have to deconstruct the myth of the great artist. You, you can't just simply say, well, add women to it, because the great artist is not just um, an, just a fact of somebody is an artist. It's, it's already a mythic figure. There's a life story that goes with it. It's compounded by the ways people interview artists. It's the way that they are, are celebrated and, and treated and, and um, discussed and spoken about. And then you have the woman artist. And the minute I say woman artist, the word woman is an adjective. It, it qualifies the term artist which means she's not an artist, she's a woman artist, or a black artist, or a queer artist, which means the normative artist is white, and masculine, and heterosexual, and probably Western. Everything that you have to add a, a, a qualifier to, you've already disqualified from being part of the automatic um, thing, that, the concept you hear when somebody says artist. So you have to deconstruct that and you have to understand what is the nature of the myth. And Van Gogh is the perfect myth for the 20th century because he is a inheritor of a great tradition of the notion of the suffering artist, of the sort of artist as mad, the artist as genius, the artist as isolated. But he becomes a perfect figure for the artist in capitalism because it says you just ha you know you will be rewarded after your death because we'll love your work even though you suffered. Now, that's one side, and so Van Gogh will come there, hold on to him for a moment. But the other side then was I had to deconstruct equally the myth of the woman artist. I had to reveal that any time somebody wrote about an artist who was a woman, they spoke of her with certain feminine stereotypes. Her work was weaker, it was lyrical, it was not epic, it was pastoral, right? She wasn't an innovator, she was a follower. And I found that actually when you studied art history, 
although 20th century art history more or less wipes women out, it leaves a few in there in order to function as this negative foil. You'll mention somebody, you'll mention David, this neoclassical you know, uh, French artist of the Great Revolutionary Period, and then you might say, and then there's the sweet softness of Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun. You know, and we'll show a picture of her with her daughter. So the domestication, whereas you'll see David's self-portrait, you know, with his terrible injury and his palate. And I did a beautiful comparison of Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun's um, representation of Hubert Robert, a romantic artist who's looking away, you know, and looking at his palette, you know, and then her self-portrait borrows from Rubens's portrait of the woman in the straw hat, his wife, and appears therefore, even though she has a palette, to have a completely different iconography for even what is the body of woman and the body of man, the artist. Now, to go back to Van Gogh, what I felt was that I had been taken in 1961 as a child to an exhibition. And I think now in retrospect, as I worked on this, it was the first exhibition I went to. And I remember vividly going through the dark, dark rooms with his paintings when he's in Holland of impoverished, immiserated, emaciated peasants and bent bodies and angled uh, outlines of their bodies and lumpen faces and huge hands. And then suddenly it gets a bit lighter when he goes to Paris. And then there's this absolutely ecstatic, you know, arrival in the South, you know, just like you know, us Northerners when we go on holiday to the South and think, oh, you know, we are in sunshine, you know, as opposed to these lovely gray Northern lights we have. And then, of course, you, take, you get taken to his death. All of a sudden, you, you, you come along and then they say he's committed suicide. And, and I, I find this narrative traumatic. I find it Christological. Um, and when I studied Lust for Life, the film by Minnelli, he, uh, Van Gogh shoots himself in a kind of crucifixion scene, this evocation of the notion of this artist as sacrifice. But I was so shocked at being led through this in an exhibition to the death, and I encountered it again in the next Van Gogh exhibition in 69 that I saw. And I, I felt troubled by this narrative on two levels. If someone kills themselves, which we now know, uh, and we now think he suffered from um, bipolar disorder, and that it's a terrible level of anguish that depression produces, such that you want it, you don't want to live, you don't want to be dead, but you don't want to feel anymore. And we have a, would have a very different view of the illness. But rather than this story that inevitably he was unloved and he was things. So he's driven to this, this point and I thought, well, maybe there's another narrative which is much more interesting, which is Van Gogh is a highly intelligent amateur. He's self-taught. He never goes to art things. He reminds me a little bit of my father and other people I know who didn't go to university who are hungry for knowledge. They read incredibly widely. They are very knowledgeable. But what happens when you do go to university is you get disciplined. You have a method of saying, this is, you know, let's argue over it, but this is serious stuff or this is a major stuff. Van Gogh consumed everything. English literature, German literature, Russian literature, Dutch literature, um, French literature. He was a passionate reader of Dickens. He was a passionate reader of Zola. These are the great novels of 19th century exploration of the city. 
right? These are Dickens gave us the concept of what the city is as a place of darkness and crime and mystery that requires a detective. Zola, it's the place of darkness and crime and, and degradation. Um, but so I looked at Van Gogh and said, what would happen if you thought about him in terms of the city and the country? You saw him as an artist struggling with modernity in terms of thinking the city is the place where I'll, I'll be able to discern the character of modernity, or no, I will go back to the country where I will be safe from modernity and we will idolize the peasants and misrecognize their unbelievably harsh life for a simple life. And then as he, you can begin to see how Van Gogh's career bounces backwards and forwards. But then I discovered that when he went to France, all he is talking about is Holland, but not Holland, the Netherlands of the 19th century, but of the 17th century. He says, I'm, I'm in the land of Rysdale, I'm in the land of Hobbemer. He writes to Gauguin and Bernard, these key figures in the sort of development of what we think of post-Impressionism, who are pushing ahead after Impressionism, he says, Go to the Louvre and look at Rembrandt. So this is a complicated story to argue, but it's, it's justifiable in all sorts of ways and it's documentable. So I, I wanted to sort of both do an analysis of the myth of Van Gogh, which is in everybody's mind, the artist everybody's heard of, and a celebrity created by a whole series of exhibitions after the first, Second World War, and what was it that that story served? And what would it be if I said, let's have um, a kind of a much more complex, rich and perplexing sense of an artist who is self-taught, struggling with modernity and missing what everybody else, the Gauguins and the Cezannes, he doesn't understand what they're doing. He doesn't understand Manet. He doesn't understand that, but he arrives at the point at which modern art did arrive, which is to say, we actually can't manage modernity. We are going to flee it, and we'll flee into abstraction. Um, so I think it, it's a very interesting thing to say, how do you undo this tight um, structure of the legend, which makes him the representation of the, the artist, the suffering artist, the masculine artist? And if I can undo that and produce a more historical account of this absolutely iconic artist, I can also invite people to undo the, the stereotype of the woman artist and produce an argument which says, actually, when you study it, men and women co-created art and particularly co-created modernism. And Impressionism is the first egalitarian art movement with Mary Cassatt, Bert Moiseau, Yves Gonzalez, and uh, Marie Braquemond absolutely there in the organization. And if we could get there, I don't have to make a special case for women. The, the case is historical. There they were, everywhere you looked. In 1981, you published the book Old Mistresses, Women, Art and Ideology, together with the art historian, psychotherapist, Rosika Parker. This landmark book has been republished in several editions, including this year. And in the book, you develop a structural critique of sexism in the art world, and you argue for the importance of changing the rules of the game, as you say, of art history, including how we understand the notion of art, the subject of the artists, and concepts of value and quality. The title of the book reads in itself as a kind of a conceptual intervention that troubles established terms in art history, 
such as Old Masters. What was the impetus for you and Parker's work on this seminal book? The title comes from an exhibition that um, uh, two American art historians, um, and I'm having a little a moment, which is Elizabeth Brown and her colleague, created at the Baltimore Museum of Arts because they were part of this early movement amongst curators and art historians who discovered works by artists who are women in the basements of their museums. And the term old masters in art history, or in fact the, old, the art market, refers to art from the 16th to the 18th century. So they wanted to show that the term for artists, great artists of the past of this great era was already gender specific and you couldn't have a feminine equivalent because if you say old mistresses, it doesn't have the sense of master, it has the hence sense of being a sexual, a kept woman, or in fact it's the origin of Mrs, the mistress of somebody. So they already said, look, it's, it's there in language, we don't even have a way to speak this. So there were a number of books in the 1970s, 60s and 70s, which were, you know, Our Hidden Heritage, you know, Women Artists from This to That. There's a lot of documentation that simply because it was very easy to find them. I think it's very important for the public to understand, although no art historians were teaching an art history of the West with women in it, it was very easy for us to find the dictionaries, to find the archives, to find the paintings. So when Rosie Parker and I decided we would write our book based on conversations we'd done with the Women's Art History Collective, we asked ourselves two questions. What did we have to add to this existing rediscovery model? Putting women back on show, organizing exhibitions, making survey histories of women artists. And the other was that we both had a supervisor at the Courtauld Institute, later the director of the Tate Gallery, Alan Bonnes, who laughed at me. He said, get on with your thesis. Don't worry about this trivial subject. It's ridiculous. And you're wasting your intelligence on something that has no value. And so we wanted to know why Alan Bonnes could laugh at us for studying women artists. It's not the same as saying, oh, they're no good. It was, you know, it was beneath contempt. It was ridiculous. And we thought if we could understand why that's possible, we would have not just been rediscovery and returning our hidden heritage to the bookshelves where it'll stay. We would be able to understand what the structural function of art historical discourse is to produce an art history without women to produce an art history in which it is normal for the artist to be a man and a straight man and to suppress all other complexity and to suppress women specifically, except insofar as you reference them, as I said before, to be this stereotype of lack. So what we wanted to do was to analyze the discourse, the pattern, and we open this by saying the quotation from Virginia Woolf, who says, if you go to the British Museum, you'll find that there's hundreds of books telling women what they are, but very few written by women exploring. So you have to critique the, 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 the old master model and reveal it for what it is. Reveal, which was a great discovery when we studied it, that women artists are recorded in all the forms of art history, including Vasari, including Pliny, you know, went back to all these, these great people. We have classical art, we know their names. 
right up to the formation of these big dictionaries of all the artists of the world created by the Germans at the beginning of the 20th century. And 20th century art history, modern art history, the one that was being published by Feiden and Thames and Hudson and was being taught, they erased women absolutely. So when I was studying, no woman was taught to me, no artist woman was ever mentioned, and yet artists that I write about now were living then, side by side. They were in the height of their careers, but they were being disappeared in their lifetimes. So we had to analyze art history. We had to analyze the feminine stereotype. We showed also the hierarchy between art made in oil and canvas versus textiles, needlework, that particular what we called crafty women. We then had looked at the ways in which women negotiated this contradiction between the image of the artist as the masculine and the image of the woman in the form of the self-portraiture and explored their diaries and writings. And then in the final chapter, we wanted to argue, explore the ways in which women, what we said, negotiated their situations of difference and they made art as much because of the specificity or the difference of their situation as despite it. Now, normally people say women were discriminated against. So Linda Nochlin argues women artists were discriminated against and as a result, there never were any great women artists. But once we get rid of discrimination, they'll be free. And I think our argument has won out because women have not been any more uh, systematically recognized and integrated once we removed overt discrimination, i.e. not being given access to education, art education or not being chosen, we still have a minute number of women being exhibited, their art being bought, the museums are still three quarters empty as far as I'm concerned. And at the same time, we don't have a language to say how women negotiated Difference. Now, this is a really crucial thing because it's not there are women and I say this is what women are and this is what men are. We're talking about not having a unitary, solitary, hegemonic ideal, but exploring how difference is creative, sometimes difficult, but it's negotiated. So in the final chapter, we were looking at artists of the 20th century, particularly in surrealism. But my favorite, which I, I, I've come back to because I've just re gone back to this question, is to compare uh, Jackson Pollock's painting method with the painting method of Helen Frankenthaler. So we've got two abstract artists for whom the manner in which you put paint on canvas is the process and is the effect. And you ask yourself the question, not do men have men things in their minds and they drop it on canvas and women have women things on their mind and they bleed it into their canvas. But how does an art practice that involves the body in its own movements, involves a certain kind of reverie as you engage in a kind of almost a ritual practice of moving paint, is there a way in which that is inscribing something that comes from different ways in which we live our embodied lives, live our psychic lives, live the timelines of our lives, to live the sort of time-space of masculinities and femininities. Because we also can't ask, you know, ignore the question that, you know, the, the kind of image of Van Gogh and the image of Jackson Pollock are these very heterosexual images 
which also silenced the question of queer subjectivities, let alone black queer subjectivities, black subjectivities. So my idea for what I, the model for Old Mistresses works for, ex, you know, exploring artists of color, artists of different sexualities and genders. And we were constantly aware that we could not simply um, propose a kind of question of gender over these others, but what feminist meant was to ask the question of difference as simultaneously sometimes a constraint, there are obstacles and limitations, but there are also possibilities and in you know contributions to the world. So reading artists like Artemisa Gentileschi or Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun or Rosa Bonheur or Mary Cassatt or Helen Frankenthal or Lee Krasner, this becomes not a matter of saying, here are the women artists you've missed out, but here are situations in art making, for instance, the 1950s, the McCarthyite era, the Cold War, all these elements. And I've just finished a book based on a long chapter that I, I wrote many in the 1990s called Killing Men and Dying Women, which is trying to explore how to imagine the um, questions of sexual difference and abstract painting in this particular moment without kind of using gender, man and woman, but exploring masculinities, femininities, issues of class, issues of Jewishness. All of these are complex forms of difference which will be negotiated. And it's my job as an art historian to, to read them, not just to celebrate the greatness and give you the reasons why you should find great, but to read the artwork as a piece of work, as a working. And this kind of project coming from old mistresses has led me as I look back as to what I subsequently wrote. You'll see I don't often write monographs. I have written on Mary Cassatt and on Charlotte Zalman, um, and I'm trying to write my book on Van Gogh, which I've failed to write for generations, but lots and lots of pieces on the way. But what I tend to do is to take problems. So my books are Old Mistresses, Women, Art and Ideology, and then Vision and Difference. So this is absolutely what I'm talking about. How does that question of visuality of the image and difference, how can we read that? Um, then gender and the color of art history. How do you unpick the implicit racism in art history? And then on the other hand, the next one was, how do you deal with the post-colonial? That artists don't come from Europe, but we don't want to have ethnic nationalism to say they're Japanese or Chinese or Korean. So I came up with this concept of generations and geographies in which each artist is understood in a kind of familial biographical history, but also a kind of a, a timeline of the history of their own society. And they're also in a sort of geographical space line because they may have been you know, born in, in Taipei, but live in New York and practice in Berlin, right? So you need these double axes, which are not confining artists as representatives of nations or ethnicities or genders or classes, but are dynamically living in these different ways. And then the next big one, which was an answer to, to Old Mistresses was, in the 1990s, I said, Given what I wrote, we wrote in Old Mistresses, why has the canon not disappeared? So what do we do with the canon? Why is it in place? How does feminism deal with it? And I came up with this sort of Derridian concept of differencing the canon, 
Which brings us back to Van Gogh a bit, which is there's an essay in that book on Van Gogh and also on Toulouse-Lautrec to show that a feminist interest in the questions of the sort of the psychoanalytical and the psychosocial condition of an artist in relation to the question of the mother, right? In question of, of uh, how the mother figures for all subjects. I could read that in Van Gogh and I couldn't read it in Van Gogh if some part of that psychosocial formation was not available to me as well. So I was both differencing the canon by introducing him to a feminist reading, at the same time situating myself as the reader in terms of this shared question of the psychosocial formation of subjectivity. And then my most recent concept is called the Virtual Feminist Museum. And this comes about because um, I think I always said to myself that the, the curators, the keepers of the canon, the people who are the gatekeepers of museums and, and, and indeed academic publishing, do not think I'm a real art historian because I mix up psychoanalysis and sociology and philosophy. But you can see I'm, I'm, I'm always focused on reading the work. It is about art history. I am an art historian. But they wouldn't trust me, right? Because you might mislead the public, because you might come along and ask them to think something which is not canonical and official knowledge. So I never got to do any exhibitions. And yet I think the exhibition is this lovely form where you, you have a certain proposition made to you by somebody who chooses a group of works to be there. And then individually we wander in and we make our own conversations. We see a relationship between this or that. We bring our own lives and say, this means a lot to me, whereas that one you say it's great, but it doesn't mean a lot to me. So I wanted a form in which I wasn't going to be authoritatively writing about artworks and illustrating them as the subset to my story. I wanted people to have a sense that here's a, a collection of things that I think talk to each other in non-canonical ways, breaking through different medium, you know, sometimes a film shot, sometimes a drawing, a painting, sometimes a poster, something like that, which indicates this cultural conversation across all the media. And then my text is not illustrated. It's my proposition. It's my reading. But it means that I'm, I found myself getting close to Arby Warburg, who's an early 20th century art historian that we've sort of recently recovered, who made these great panels and put art together in ways that defied the story of nation, period, movement, style, master. He, he had an idea of images migrating and their meanings changing in relation to different times. So I don't then look like someone who's done the big book on Michelangelo or the big book on Artemisia Gentileschi. I have created concepts with which to think a feminist project exploring difference and uh, diversity. I think your work on the Virtual Feminist Museum is a key example in how you work to develop new forms of practice. After all, Joran Parker's critique of the flawed logic behind the attempt to write artist women into the established canon in Old Mistresses is now almost 40 years old. Yet we see that art museums today keep throwing shows after shows that centers on bringing rediscovered artist women into the canon. There's a kind of cruel optimism at play here, for while these shows seem to suggest that something is changing, the logic of the canon seems to secure that everything remains the same. 
But the Virtual Feminist Museum offers a different alternative here, it seems, to these kind of add-on histories offered by rediscovery shows, as it seeks to create not just a different context for revisioning art history, but also a different kind of encounter with art itself. To me, there seems to be a political, and I'm almost tempted to say utopian, gesture at play in your work on creating these new forms of encounter. Thank you so much for bringing that up, because that the, the encounters in the Virtual Feminist Museum is the, the, the full title of the book, Time, Space and the Archive. And that the concept of encounter I, I take from my kind of sort of, you know, the work that goes on beside of, I've very long been interested in the work of an artist who's also a psychoanalytical theorist, Bracher Lichtenberg Ettinger, known as Bracher Ettinger now. And I encountered her work in, in the 1990s and I was absolutely compelled by her painting. Primarily that's what I encountered first, that her as an artist. But then I discovered that she had sort of translated the discoveries she was making in her own painting as a child born into the double catastrophe of uh, the Nachbar and the Holocaust and trying to negotiate, again, like my generation, the 68, this sort of traumatic legacy of unresolved nationalisms and ethnicisms and the legacies of European genocide. So, um, and she offers a particular theory of subjectivity as encounter of understanding the term encounter is a term which is, I think, so perfect for our thinking about art history and the experience we have of art, because so much of art history has become a kind of master discourse. This is, I do the historical research, I tell you what it means, I tell you what's great, this is the, the canon, this is why you should be studying this. And the museum uh, lays this out spatially tells you the story, leads you through the minor works to the great works, doesn't give you a freedom to, I mean, obviously you'd have a freedom to wander, but actually there is a logic in, in that. And I wanted this uh, notion that you cannot predict what comes out of the encounter. I am not the master art historian telling you what these works mean or why women are important. I'm trying to find out how to bring to other people's attention things that require all of my skill, all of my intelligence, all of my learning to um, enable me to fragilize myself, to sensitize myself to what might be happening in this work. What is this work doing? And so the idea of the encounter is, as you say, precisely a kind of political mode that challenges the authoritative, the hegemonic, the official, the canonized, the exclusive um, dominant story that is given to you as knowledge, as history, as the story of art, while at the same time um, offering very serious and very deep propositions, arguments, right, that there's something there. So in my book on uh, um, encounters in the virtual museum, I have a section called Visions of Stex, which is exploring the kind of whole kind of interest in the question of the body and desire and sexuality in the beginning of the 20th century that, that echoes with um, D.H. Lawrence's novels, it echoes with obviously the impact of Freud and psychoanalysis, it echoes with um, women entering modernism and, you know, not painting Venuses but beginning to explore how would the representation of their bodies and one of my key 
chapters is about Josephine Baker, an African-American dancer who's known for performing these very erotic, semi-nude um, images that people see as completely exploitative, racist and exploitative, and that she's subject to the colonializing gaze. But when I studied her talking about what it meant as a woman, a black, an African-American woman whose history is that of sexual abuse as a, 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 race, a piece of property in the in era of enslavement and bearing the, the mark of being seen as a sort of dark and, in, and, and sort of degenerate race by racist society, what it meant for her to discover her own beauty as a dancing body, as a black body. And that her dancing was, as it were, her authoring her own musicality knowingly in defiance of a gaze that could easily treat her in its to a racist view, but she was not succumbing to it. At the same time, I went on to look at what happened to the body after the Holocaust, because what we witnessed being done in the real, through the concentration camps and through the uh, extermination camps, has meant we no longer can pretend that the tradition of the Christian body, or Raphael's Three Graces, these bodies of beauty, or Giorgione's lovely nude lying in the landscape. Once you see women lying in a landscape who've been shot to death just for being Jewish in the photograph, there is a rupture. And I wanted in the book to show that art history is, has ignored this. It fails to understand the depth of the rupture of what happened in the 20th century. And we are on two sides of it. And this brought me to a chapter in my book on Charlotte Zalaman, whom I've now written an entire book about, because she comes to us on the other side of the rupture because she was murdered in Auschwitz, but her work was made before that was conceivable in this period I call before Auschwitz. So I'm also rewriting or rethinking the, the epochs, right? So the normal art history you'll get in a museum would be um, you know, modernism, we'll have some cubism and fauvism, and then we'll have some de style, and then we'll, you know, move on to some of the sort of surrealism, and then we'll get to abstract expressionism, and then they don't know what happened. They'll probably get pop art and minimalism, and then they have to have just contemporary art, right? But they still try to give you that map. Well, you know, where is the First World War? Where is the Second World War? Where is the Depression? Where is the first flights? You know, where are the, um, uh, the, the, the sort of, um, obviously the Holocaust? Where is the sense of the nuclear Cold War, the threat of the Cold War? So if you just have a chronological survey and that, you, you miss this sense that art is shaped by these historical events, but also gives a form to them. And the transformation of art is that. So my second installation of the, um, uh, virtual Feminist Museum is called After Affects, After Images, Trauma and Aesthetic Transformation. Because the big question then is, what can art do in the face of, um, in a sense, the defeat of modernity, the, the, the kind of, the, the, the understanding that its promise was betrayed, it still has the promise, democracy, freedom, justice, rights. But we witness these terrible betrayals and we have to come to terms with them. But at the same time, art now deals with that. And so much of our 20th, late 20th, early 21st century art is 
now not suddenly conceptual because it stopped being formal, it still has to transform, produce formulations, right? And I think museums are unable to understand um, what the social history, what feminist art history um, would require of it as a form in order to enable people to see that. So that, that's why I've used the book form to say, here are some of the, the, the terms we might think about. Once you put them in play, you will see the work for what it's doing and forming for us as a transport station of trauma that not everybody will encounter and meet. It's the encounter is not predictable, right? Because there isn't a right story and you're not learning the right story. You're opening yourself up to what artists ask of us through the forms that they've created for formulating suffering, joy, ecstasy, pleasure, desire, all these death and life, all these big questions. And I think people would have a much greater engagement with art and, and, and experience art, not as something to be consumed as a fashionable item or go and stand in front of museums and sort of, you know, you know, whenever they film people in museums, they're always standing in sort of semi-religious awe, right? Because many people don't have enough to say, oh, I see that's what's going on. Oh, maybe that's interesting. No, I don't agree with you, but I do see something going on. So I think there is a, a change. You're right, absolutely. And I, I think um, I was forced into, as it were, a book form. And I've, in terms of my own curation, I've learned another thing, which is I curated an exhibition of Bracha Ettinger's work. And then I had to write the book afterwards because I realized bringing the work together, paying the fees, you know, getting the taxes, getting the delivery, isn't what has happened when the work actually comes into encounter itself, encountering the space, encountering people. So I wrote this book called Art Writing After the Event as a model for, in a sense, of not thinking the curator formulates and puts on the walls and then we just have a few catalogues with illustrations. It is. Uh, a work of art itself for artists to produce an exhibition. Yeah. Your latest book, Charlotte Solomon, Theatre of Memory, from 2018, is also relevant to this regard, as it addresses the question of how we encounter works of art in other ways. Uh, the book grows out of a more than 25-year-long attempt of trying to understand what this specific artwork is really about, the piece called Leben oder Theater, life question mark or theater question mark that Charlotte Solomon worked on in the first years of the 1940s in Berlin and later in southern France leading up to her deportation and murder in Auschwitz. I wonder if you could say something about the process of writing this book as I think it brings together so many important strands of your work. Not only the engagement with history of art, modernism and the position of women and Jewish women in particular herein but also your way of staying close to the material in this case, the more than 700 paintings that constitute this work by Solomon. A work you also read as a philosophical inquiry uh, and as a document of social, political and historical moment that can teach us something important about trauma, memory and subjectivity in quite extraordinary ways. Absolutely. I mean, um, you've described the, the, the project of 
Labor Noda Theater, Life or Theater, uh, beautifully there, Matthias, because um, it's an art historical anomaly. Um, most people to be considered an artist have to be exhibited, written about, documented. <clears throat> Their work has to be lots of it. It has to have a beginning, a middle, a late career, and it has to be in a museum. And Charlotte Zalman, who was murdered when she was 26, began at the age of about 24, 23, 24, this monumental cycle in which she produced 784, in fact, she produced over a thousand paintings in possibly about a year. And we don't know what it is. We don't know entirely why she made it. There's nothing like it in the history of, of art. And yet it's completely conscious of the history of art. It, very knowing. It knows about opera, it knows about music, it knows about cabaret, it knows about, um, you know, it's almost sort of Walter Benjamin-esque in its interest in, in the sort of city and memory. Uh, it's clearly influenced by a concept of Nietzsche. There's a great engagement with the First World War and a survivor of the trenches and there's all these issues and it's witness to the rise of Nazism and she goes to art school in the Third Reich watching all her Jewish professors disappear, being allowed to be there because her father was a veteran of the First World War and she was the only Jewish student in her class. She witnesses the degenerate art show that was all the modern art that uh, Hitler got together in order to say it's Jewish and it's Bolshevik and degenerate and will be exiled from the new you know, Aryan Third Reich. Uh, so she got a whole history of modern art as a gift of, of Hitler, very interesting. But she made this work and so many of us, when we discovered it, particularly in the feminist community, particularly in the kind of Jewish studies community, particularly those of us working in and around the issue of the Holocaust, immediately said, we must work on this. And most people have taken it as an autobiography, have made it a kind of um, a visual Anne Frank. She's another woman victim of, you know, young girl, young woman victim of the Holocaust who left us this sort of account of her life. And I knew it wasn't. I, I you know, in a kind of pig-headed sort of way, I said, I just don't think this is adequate to this. There's too many complexities to it. So what you, you've been saying, Matthias, is quite right. The, the only thing I had to do was to say, I have to be an art historian. If I'm going to do an art historical analysis, I have to start, what am I looking at? How would I describe it? And I always teach my students this, which is you must always start your work with looking at things. And I remember when I was first doing my 19th century work, going back to the beginning of this conversation, the Courtauld, I went to the, um, the, the Jeu de Paume, that was where the modern paintings were. And I remember standing in front of Manet's Olympia uh, and saying, I don't think I know what to do. So I wrote, it's very large. <laughs> right? There are two people in it. You know, there's a cat. I just made myself start with the stupidest, simplest, what am I seeing? And making myself, by describing it, begin to see it. And I, when I was doing my Van Gogh research, I was sent to, to the Krola Müller, which has this wonderful collection of Van Gogh drawings. And they put me in a little glass box with all these incredibly precious boxes. And I looked at them and I thought, I don't have the first clue what is because I'm, you know, I'm just a rookie artist or in this point. And so I take my pencil and says, I didn't expect them to be so large because there are these great drawings that are imperial size. And then I noticed 
that he pressed very heavily on the outlines. And then I, you know, that was when that led me to make a decision. He's copying. He's, these drawings are like you copy, you know, when you are not trained drawer, you do, when you're trained in draftsman, you're looking at space and volume and you do all sorts of interesting ways to get it. No, he just drew an outline. So I thought, ah, copybook apprentice. This is why he could never do anything because he never learned to draw volumes. So that's that sense of how you make a discovery is by just what am I looking at? You know, what's it made of? So with the Labour Nord Theatre, I taught myself gouache painting and I copied some of her paintings to say, how long would it take to do this? What does it feel with this kind of material to make these marks? Uh, what kind of brushes did she use? How did she establish things? And I had to get into this process. And then by analyzing uh, the different works, with my refusal to accept it's autobiographical, I concluded, as you said, that it's an investigation. If you have a work which has two question marks, it's life or death, right? Living or dying, life or theater? Two question marks? What is, you know, how did this come about? What, what are the, the stakes involved? And so the, the book is designed, and going back to the question we had before, I, I knew how I would want that book designed because I want the reader not to get this work follows this work, this works work. But what I realized is if I treated it like a detective fiction, like a mystery, something happens as a crime. It starts with a crime. A woman kills herself. Not a crime, but it is a crime in a sense because she kills herself because of something. And it ends with the work where the woman is the image of the painter is painting her first painting. So it, end, it sort of ends where it's starting. So it's reverse time. And if you study detective fiction, you get all sorts of clues put in, all of which sort of make you think, this is what's going on. Oh, it's him. No, it's her. Oh, that's what's happening. Okay. But eventually the idea is to bring it together in such a way as you say, oh, right, that's what it is. So I wanted to treat this work as a mystery. It's asking questions. It's a philosophy of should I die or should I kill someone? Or have some, did somebody die? You know, this is the thing. And once you do that, the paintings come to life. And again, going back to what we were saying before about exhibitions, they always exhibit it um, chronologically. So people think they're following a story. But I thought in a book, I could go backwards and forwards. I could say, we're not going to do that logic. I'm going to have eight paintings, which will be keys. And then I can open each work to a whole sequence around it. So that I begin to plot out, as, as you're saying, the, the historical, because it's the rise of Nazism, but it's also the story of three women and then, well, ultimately four women, one who kills herself, another one who kills herself, another one, um, well, then there's three, there's the grandmother who also does, and then there's a, a singer, and then there's a professor, and then there's an artist. And if I treated it like a Brechtian play, in which we all were characters, I wouldn't fall into this autobiographical over-personalizing, because people then, when they write about women, they immediately talk about Charlotta, Frida, Merit, Louise, 
Now, we don't talk about Pablo or Henri or Gerhardt, right? The author name, the patronym is the artist's name. And then women are automatically things. And the first publications on Charlotte Zalman were Charlotte, a diary and pictures. Now, it's fair enough they thought that, but my book is designed so as the reader goes through each chapter, they meet the key painting, these eight key paintings. And then all the supplementary enrichment and the complementary um, images, etc., enable me to build a story about uh, a, a work that is what I call it suspended between the event and the everyday. And the event covers, in a sense, the grand historical landscape of the 20s, 30s, and 40s. Weimar, the end of Weimar, the rise of the Third Reich, and then, of course, the the, the, the war and the occupation of France and her, her jeopardy as a, a, a Jewish refugee in France. But at the same time, the everyday is entirely this question that feminism has made us ask about, that what seems to be not historical and not political and not social, the everyday is the world of intimacy, domesticity, uh, indeed sexual abuse, uh, desire, fantasy, um, and, and, and a different set of relations. So this is, in a sense, the culmination of, it's the, only, it's the book I could only write after 50 years of being an art historian. It needed all the things we've talked about today, um, understanding art history, understanding the discourse, understanding the problems, understanding the exclusions, developing concepts, becoming aware, like in modernity and the spaces of femininity, this sense of how different spaces in Impressionist painting allow us to understand psychosocial existence, embodiment, desire, what is important or, diff or indifferent to different groups, um, why sexuality and commercial sexuality is this big area, but why the relationships between women or children and adults becomes a sort of space for um, Mary Cassatt. So when I came also with having dedicated all of the 90s to developing courses on the formation of the cultural memory of the Holocaust and the entry of the Holocaust into cultural representation, museums, films, visual art, literature, the philosophy, um, theology, I was able to sort of, you know, prepare myself. And then because of the work with Bracha Ettinger and the interest in psychoanalysis that I originally got from film theory, as it passed into feminist psychoanalysis and trauma theory, I had the tools with which to do this close reading and hopefully make this work something other than an autobiography and pictures of a tragic set of stories. And I have an argument which was then confirmed when we got a lost document came back. But I did reread this book in anticipation of this conversation, knowing it as I did when I wrote it. Um, I advise no one to read it in bed. It's too heavy. It would fall on your nose and break it if you're reading it. The only way I think to read it is to take it chapter by chapter, to take these little sweets and have a sort of experience between it of how, how it's building this architecture to enable people to um, arrive at the sense of the shocking, the wonderful thing she did, the philosophical thing this artist did like no other, but also how those realities 
of the event in the everyday might have led to something which I won't reveal to you because you'll discover it if you read the book, but it is absolutely shattered everybody in the Charlotte Salomon world to discover that she could say, do I die or does he die? Do I kill or do I live? Uh, and that really takes us to the depths of when we talk about trauma or historic um, events that are so unimaginable as living on the cusp of imprisonment and death uh, at the hands of the Nazis, then that's what I want people to feel, not the banal smoothed over, but the intensity and the brilliance and the depth that art takes us to if we prepare ourselves adequately to encounter it. This brings us to your work with a large-scale research project on concentrationary memories that you've developed with Max Silverman over the last 15 years or so. This project really exemplifies how you develop concepts that allow us to work across aesthetical, social and political histories in new ways. The concept of the concentrationary invites us to consider practices of dehumanization not only as these extraordinary events, but as processes that are bearing on the everyday in totalitarian regimes and contexts. It offers an approach to analyze and theorize the destruction of humanity, also beside and beyond the concentration camps in World War II. And today, where new forms of fascism seem to be on the rise, where populations are relegated to slow deaths and detention camps, this concept of the concentrationary seems to have much to offer. How did the project on the concentrationary memory develop? Thank you very much. That's a, it's a really important part. So um, the Centre Cath is a transdisciplinary uh, and that's not an interdisciplinary. It means that we bring different disciplines together around a shared concept. And so we look at it from these different, very specific, I do understand disciplinary ways of thinking are, it's not a mishmash. Concentrationary memories followed on from the fact that both Max and I were um, deeply influenced by Zygmunt Bauman who was the professor of sociology at Leeds and then emeritus at Leeds. And in 1989, his book, Holocaust and Modernity, shattered the world by making this connection that the Holocaust, in sense, is not the product of modernity, was made a possibility by the rationality, the logic of modernity. And we were both teaching Holocaust studies and he was in French literature and I'm one of the first people to do a course in Holocaust studies in, in cultural studies and, 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 and visual arts, history of art. Um, but we increasingly became aware that there was a confusion between extermination, genocidal extermination, which happens in four or five key sites in Poland during a thing called Operation Reinhardt. It extends a little bit later at Auschwitz. Most of those sites are destroyed and gone, and most of the people who were sent to extermination camps were Jewish and died within one to two hours of being there. The concentration camp predates extermination and is a form which we find not only in used by people in you know, Cuba and the British in South Africa and, uh, uh, other, and other societies beforehand, but it becomes an instrument of a, terror, of a society that is going to be ruled by terror. And the Political deportees from France, many of them left-wing, that's why they were opposed to the Third Reich, 
when they survived, they came back and they gave us this kind of anatomy of what they called l'univers concentrationnaire, that this is a society created within a society to erode it from within. And post-war, the man who wrote l'univers concentrationnaire, David Rousset, learned about the gulags that Stalin was setting up and learned about the use of the old concentration camp sites in Germany by the East German uh, communist regime. And so we suddenly got to realize that this wasn't finished as, uh, you know, the extermination did destroy six million people and is, is finished, but the concentrationary is a phenomenon of, of totalitarianism, which societies, I mean, you could look at the dictatorships in Latin America, you could look at apartheid, that's a concentrationary society. And increasingly we can see elements of that in our way of dealing with asylum seekers. Well, we are creating camps. We are depriving people of the rights to have rights in all sorts of ways. Our society uh, is permeated a bit. But so we wanted to look at this. Holocaust memory is a memory in which you mourn the devastation and destruction of the Jewish civilization of Europe and the six million people who were destroyed and all the philosophers and the laughters and the artists like Charlotte Solomon who never lived to be themselves because of that. We also mourn, uh, and we mourn it the every day, but concentrationary memory is one that's meant to agitate us, to say, look about you. This virus, they even call it la plague, la peste, this disease of the concentrationary doesn't lie buried under the ruins of Auschwitz. It's alive and well and permeates our society. So concentrationary memory is a way of asking ourselves to be vigilant, to know its signs and to be vigilant for all aspects of it that are present. And concentrationary imaginaries, which is an element of that, is I became aware that elements of what we had understood as the concentrationary permeates popular culture. It's a condition of so much of the increasingly violent nature of cinema, the nature in which every film I go to, in which I know and accept that somebody won't make it to the end. Who are the casualties? Go back to my Van Gogh thing. Who, who, who do we allow to, to, do we sacrifice? Now, they're always the lower paid actors. You know if he's high paid, he'll probably make it to the end of the movie, etc. But we do not mourn the deaths of many of them who pass through a movie. A black man will be shot. You know, a woman will be raped as the condition or murdered or, you know, mutilated as the condition for the story. We don't mourn it. We're not affected by it. So, one of myself and Benjamin Hanovi Cousin, uh, we worked on this kind of concentration imaginaries. How is it seeped into, percolated into, reshaped, normalized our expectations of a world in which we are indifferent to the abuse of the humanity of another? Now, that's very intimate with the feminist project, the Bracha Ettinger project, of what makes me unable not to share. So there's the impossibility of not sharing the pain of the other, is the feminist position. And how do we get to a, an ethical politics in which we cannot tolerate the diminution of human beings as human beings? So I think concentrationary memory coming out of a historical sort of a distinction and a framing of the two different elements of totalitarianism and genocidal racism, 
comes to something that we now have to say, it seeps into our culture, it's normalized itself. We have to be vigilant and wary of all these um, kind of softening of the edges of our own acute ethical compassion. And uh, in we have also just published the third one, which we did one on concentrationary film, concentration memories, concentrationary imaginaries, which is about pop terrorist terror and popular culture, and now concentrationary art, which bridges between the notion of what is it to return from the camp, the, the figure of Lazarus, the returner who carries the dead, and now you know we think about all those men and women who served in all the wars, that everybody says, you know, they never spoke, right? They didn't, my father didn't speak. They didn't say what they went through. Um, I think this weekend they're marking the uh, end of the war in Japan, uh, in Europe, that they're, and of course, many of the people there said, my, they, they lived in the, the camps of the Japanese. They never spoke of it, you know? And that silence then gets passed on and generations don't know what it was that their fathers or their mothers endured, and that it, but it's passed on. So this question of trauma and transmission, or memory and the failure of memory, or the failure of vigilance, and why and then the heart of this is Hannah Arendt, that we, whose argument about totalitarianism and the human condition suddenly became so urgent for me as a framing that although she was never a feminist, actually led me to, um, you know, a question, if I can just read this, that I really do want to say, which is how can feminist thought break the cycle of crimes against humanity that are so symbolically bound up with both the negation of humanity to the feminine, to women, an identification of death and the face of horror, like the Medusa, with women who are seen as threatening or killing or the killed, why is gender the repressed question of the analysis of contemporary violence? So they all weave in together as different facets of a kind of expanded transdisciplinary cultural studies. But in each of the books, the core of what I contribute is this close, close reading of art working, what art does the work of art as something doing something, producing something, wanting to be read in complex ways in order to have its effect and not just to be celebrated as now as an object which has a huge price tag or the thing, the, the exhibition you must see, the artist you must know. The name, you know, the celebrity and all of those things are now worse than when I started because they're entirely financialized and the market is the thing determining uh, sales and, and artists now entertainment on television with these same old stories, these heroic stories and all of what we've done for the last 50 years as feminists and cultural analysts is you know not taken into the world, not given to the public in the terms that can give them a sense of being enabled to understand their world. Your work testifies to the ways in which art history and cultural analysis can enable people to better understand the world that we live in. In the face of many urgencies of our times, we are dependent on critical tools to help us identify and describe the problems 
as well as to find ways to responding to them. I'm thinking here, for instance, the ongoing corona pandemic, which is the reason why we're talking to each other on safe social distance between Leeds and Copenhagen. And around us, different social movements from Me Too to Black Lives Matter are fighting structural sexism, racism, and discrimination in society as well as in cultural institutions, such as the university and the art museum. What do you think that we art historians and cultural analysts can offer in response to these urgencies of our time? Yeah, I, th I think I'd answer that by saying two things. One is um, uh, we are probably going to look to artists and writers and even philosophers and psychologists to help us understand what we're actually living through because we are in the midst of it and we don't have terms. So I, I looked up some of the stuff about the Spanish flu to see whether or not there were traces of that in literature, did it reshape? And some people even argue that the fracturing and the fragmentary and the devastated quality of modernism was itself a register, not only of the First World War, but of the pandemic and this terrifying encounter with this sort of viral death uh, that came with the Spanish flu. Um, I think we will be asking ourselves huge questions because we don't know how long will this will last. We live in an age with things, oh, it's going to be over soon. It's not. We will never go back to normal. We will never have the same trust um, because this virus will come. And they have been warning, like Bill Gates in 2015 said, the next big danger in the world. He, he gave a great talk, a TED talk, 2015, you must prepare for a pandemic, a viral pandemic. So I think this is a huge issue. And what we need to do is it's not... Um, art history, it's, we, we need to know how to read art as having already talked to its own history, given forms to the, the formless um, sense of menace or fear or panic or uncertainty or anger or rage. And also we need to, I think, bring art and, and cultural analysis and the, the rigors and disciplines of ways of thinking conceptualization, testing concepts against evidence, because we also live in an era of the social media in which the platform is now binaristic to a degree. I'm for you, I'm against you. I'm cancelling you, you're right, you're not right. You say something about this and you are absolutely will send you death threats. This is a cultural phenomenon that we are passively allowing to occur at the price of a quality of humanity, which is not, let's be reasonable in an old fashioned, you know, this is just, you know, uh, badly behaved. What is that? This is a culture. And I will, you know, put it online. I think social media and particularly some of those platforms will prove in the future to have been historically devastating for humanity. I think this is of a seriousness that we should take it and we learn this, Fry. We are always 50 years too late, right? Just as I said at the beginning, I, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm post, a post, you know, post traumatic generation 68, you know, the 1989ers, but now it's not the 1989ers, you know, but the kids who are born, you know, after the beginning of the 20th, you know, my, my students, you know, well, probably three when, you know, 9-11 happened, you know, and they don't even notice that 2007, the smartphone, changed the world, right? All of this is just normal to them, but I think this is a, 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 a challenge for education, it's a challenge for us in the arts and humanities, and the one thing I always say to people about art history is if it is the art history that makes you analyse the cultural and the visual and the image and these 
processes of, of, uh, that, that shape our very sense of what reality is, more so than even the literary or the philosophical or the theological or the high. Everyday people are, are exposed to images. We can teach people to read their own culture and find a distance within it to negotiate it. They probably won't be as critical as I am because I'm another generation and I, I'm not a millennial, but we need to speak to them, not as to say tut, 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 but we have tools that might enable you to find the space to make the decisions about which part of your culture is dehumanizing, totalitarian in its way, and which is for justice and freedom and will make us unable to tolerate the levels of human suffering that are the reality of our world and have just been made infinitely worse by the pandemic because natural disasters are human disasters and they impact in terms of class, race, ability, all the key factors and gender, all of them make the pandemic infinitely worse. Perhaps I could convince you to share some of the work you're currently engaged in, and perhaps also some of the work that the Holberg Prize might enable you to undertake if you already have started making plans. I, I, have, um, I have four books that I have to write. Uh, one is Feminism, A Bad Memory, to recover the memory of feminism, explain it. Uh, Holocaust and Cultural Memory, um, the Van Gogh book, and a book on uh, Marilyn Monroe which is a book about the 1950s, America in the 1950s, and the interface between high culture and popular culture. So I've got lots lined up. I've also got lots of artists that I have to help. Um, one of the things I, I feel in the pandemic is uh, lots of young artists have come out of art school and have not only very little opportunity to work as artists, but not any very little opportunity to, to work because they would support themselves as being baristas and, you know, museum guards and all these kinds of casual places which keep the, the emerging artists. So I, I, I'm working with a project in Leeds to do something at least directly for the, the first sort of four generations of students who've just left that emerging group in their 20s, as well as older artists, because lots of women become artists later in their lives, so there's those. Um, I, I want to create some continuity of somebody who will teach feminist theory in the way that I feel it needs to be taught with this level of understood. It's not just a little somebody to teach a few women artists, it's, it's feminist theory, feminist art history. Um, I, I want to do some scholarships, and I, I think there are a number of um, projects that will um, be specific to my research, developing, supporting, mentoring um, in, in the future. So uh, I'm in the mo beginnings of processes, but the pandemic has also made, not only that, that this is virtual, but has hit a particular community of artists uh, very seriously. And that's that I'm going to do that quite locally in Leeds because encouraging other people to do the same for each of their cities. Thank you so much, Grisella Pollock, for engaging in conversation today. And congratulations once more on the Halbert Prize. Well, thank you very much yourself, because I know you've done a great deal of work to understand it and shape this, and it's been an absolute delight to talk with you. And since this is actually so far the only moment of really feeling that I'm part of the Holberg community. Uh, I can't thank you enough for having done it so profoundly and so intelligently, and it's been a delight to talk with you.